Ohio and Indiana have completed their primaries, and the results indicate that, at least in red states, Donald Trump's endorsement still carries a significant influence in a divided and crowded primary field. We will recap the results of these primaries in this quick episode and point you toward upcoming primaries that could tell us more about exactly how much influence the president still has and how many seats Republicans are favored to take in November. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. Welcome, podcast listeners, to another episode of Blind Politics. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Please remember, views expressed in this podcast don't represent represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. And you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte and on the Facebook and Instagram pages of the Robertson School. Last night was the first set of primaries in May. And May is going to have a lot of primaries. June is going to have a lot of primaries. So we're going to be doing some coverage of that here. Now, we learned a couple of things from these primaries that were in Indiana and Ohio. And we kind of went into the top lines of each of these primaries in May in our recent primary recap episode that actually dropped on the third. Apologies for the late drop on that. We intended to have it out last week, but there were some technical difficulties with the file, which producer Emily was fortunately able to get resolved in time to drop this podcast yesterday. Now, Looking at the Ohio and Indiana primaries, I didn't preview Indiana because there was no top line race really above a couple of open seat congressional races. In Indiana, if we're looking at congressional races, the story is on the GOP side is uh, the rise of women candidates. So for those two contested seats in Indiana, both nominees are female. That was going to be pretty much a guarantee in Indiana's first, but we have Jennifer Ruth Green, who's an uh, African-American and Asian descent, Air Force veteran leads a local nonprofit, and was running a sort of an establishment conservative type figure. She beat a local mayor named Blair Milo, and will be going up against Representative Frank Mervan, who is a Democrat in one of the more hotly contested races. Biden won the district by eight points in 2020, but has been trending to the right and is one of those seats that's getting more red over time. Used to be traditional blue collar Democrat territory, but it seems to be moving in that direction, and so this could be an upset in a wave, and uh, Ruth Green seems like a strong candidate to try to ride that wave. Indiana's 9th Congressional District, which is a very deep red district, the nominee there to replace uh, Trey Hollingsworth, who is retiring, is going to be State Senator Erin Houchin. She has a long history of involvement in Hoosier politics. She's you know, been a statewide operative and so on and so forth there in the Republican Party. She seems to be young. She's, she's running as fairly conservative but certainly with an establishment flavor. She seems like somebody who could win the seat and hold it down for a long time if she wants it. So we'll be interested to see what happens in that. The Democrats have nominated a candidate named Matt Fife, but that one's going to probably stay with the Republicans and could stay with them for a long time. The last time it was competitive was in the Democrats' wave year of 2008, but it really hasn't been competitive since then. And so despite coming open a couple of times, and so in a very strong environment for Republicans, we'd expect Houchin to take the seat and be a prohibitive favorite. So that's what's happening in Indiana. Pivoting to Ohio, the two top line races, of course, you have Governor Mike DeWine, as expected, winning re-election, although with a somewhat underwhelming margin, uh, slightly under 50%, but certainly a clear uh, and decisive win for him. 
So some people were voting against DeWine because they were unhappy with his COVID restrictions. He was one of the more restrictive Republican governors, but not sufficient to deny him renomination. And he should be heavily favored in a strong environment against, I believe it is former Dayton mayor, Nan Whaley, who won the nomination pretty strongly and overwhelmingly. She's going to be Democrats nominee in a more neutral environment or in a in sort of a 2018 environment where Democrats are more heavily favored. She would have a reasonable chance in this environment as it currently is. DeWine should be considered a significant favorite for re-election. Turning now to Ohio's Senate race. And Trump-endorsed candidate J.D. Vance, author of Hillbilly Elegy, was elected. Vance is an interesting character in the sense that he has some roots in intellectual conservatism, having written for National Review and been involved in some of those things. But he's pivoted very hard populist Trumpist in recent years. He attended the National Conservatism Conference for a couple of years and has gone so far this year as to talk about how he doesn't really care about what's happening in Ukraine and to accept the endorsement of Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's really hard to say where Vance is actually going to come out as a senator. Is he going to be the person who wrote for National Review in the mid-decade? The person who wrote Hillbilly Elegy, who's sort of a policy entrepreneur? Is he going to be someone who is another person with an Ivy League degree pretending to be a populist? Not to sound too harsh, but there's a lot of that going around in GOP circles, right? People who are you know, highly educated members of the elite, whatever their background, right? And yeah, J.D. Vance has a background of coming of working his way up, but there's no doubt that he's a member of the elite now. And so is he going to try to play into that kind of populism? I would not say that Vance ran a particularly strong campaign. I would say that he benefited from Trump's endorsement. Trump's endorsement carried Vance over the finish line in a crowded field. Had Trump endorsed Jane Timken, which he was thinking about doing, or Josh Mandel, who was desperately pandering for that endorsement, or even you know somebody else in the race, that person probably would have won in this crowded of a race. And so what this shows is that in a multi-candidate field, the Trump endorsement can help you consolidate. How far does that go? I would say Vance didn't run a particularly strong campaign, but he was probably not significantly weaker than a Josh Mandel, a Mike Gibbons, or some of the other folks. Everybody in this race was sort of out of step with Ohio Republican voters in some way, shape, or form. And Vance, you know, was out of step maybe in a way of, of being too sort of overtly, clownishly populist. But Josh Mandel, like, outclowned him by, by a significant margin in just some of the way he presented himself to voters. And so I would say we really have no idea. But Vance really needs to figure it out because he's got one of the strongest recruits that Democrats have for an open Senate race running against him. That's Tim Ryan, a reasonably popular representative from Youngstown, a person who ran against Pelosi for Speaker. Ryan's one liability is that he ran for president and took a bunch of more progressive positions in 2020. So Vance could try to hit him on that, but it only lasted for about five minutes. And so, you know, Ryan is a strong incumbent. This is a a Republican leaning year. So I would expect Vance to be a favorite, but some of the other candidates not named Vance and not named Mandel, I would say were, you know, a Gibbons or a Dolan or a Timken would have been more heavily favored in a general election. In my opinion, Vance could still win. So I'm not saying he can't, But I'm saying he's going to have to work harder and he's going to have to connect with people that are not, you know, fire breathing MAGA supporters, because that's that clearly was the group that carried him to victory in this primary in a divided field. You know, he stomped in the in the rural, the rurals where there's still a lot of support for for President Trump. But that's not going to be enough in Ohio. He's got to win Hamilton County, which is Cincinnati suburbs. where there's a lot of suburbanites. He's got to do decently well in the Cleveland suburbs. He can't get slaughtered there. 
and in the areas around Columbus, the, the suburban areas. And so he's, he's going to have to pivot a little bit, I think, if he wants to win the race. Because just running as the Trumpiest Trumpist that ever trumped statewide in Ohio might win. In this environment, that might be enough. But it is going to be more challenging than it would be otherwise. Look at some of the down-ballot races. By the way, Tim, Tim Ryan, as I mentioned uh, in, in my preview, did have a contested primary, but he won it very convincingly. And so if you're, if you're Democrats, you're looking at that as, you know, this, this is a potential opportunity if Ryan runs a smart uh, campaign, and if he's smart enough to not just spend the whole time talking about Trump. So down ballot in Ohio's ninth district to run against incumbent representative Marcy, Marcy Captor. This is a district that has been blue, is trending a little bit more red, and has taken on some new red territory. Looks like Republicans are going to nominate, nominate another very Trumpy candidate, J.R. Majewski, a local, I think I pronounced that correctly, it might be Majewski, but candidate best known for having a, a very, you know, pro-Trump sign in his yard and, you know, very, very local uh, populist type candidate. I've heard mixed things about him in terms of a candidate. Some people say he's a conspiracy theorist. Some people say he's not. I will say Captor's a strong incumbent. She's been there for 30 years. She knows the district and the area well. And you you want to be running your strongest potential candidate there again. I'm not sure we got our strongest nominee there, but in a wave environment like this, it may not matter. And so it'll be interesting to see how that all plays itself out. A couple other races that are, you know, were contested primaries, and we'll get into a sort of a race by race analysis of the House closer on. But in Ohio's 11th district, there was a contested Democratic primary. Representative Chantel Brown, who is a more establishment Democrat, certainly not a conservative Democrat, but, but certainly more establishment, crushed a return primary challenge from Nina Turner, who was running as a bold progressive squad type and who was a Bernie Sanders acolyte previously. And uh, Chantel Brown dispatched her very easily. She will easily get reelected in that district. Ohio's 13th district, which should be close. I'm going to probably mispronounce this name, uh, so I apologize in advance. But Madison, I think it's Jesse Otto Gilbert, who is a former Miss USA, will be the Republicans nominee there. She's going against Democratic State Rep. Amelia Sykes. The district is what's called even PVI, meaning that in a in a tightly contested year, if, if we were in a completely neutral environment, it would be one of the swingiest seats in the country. And so it will be interesting to see what happens in that race as well. And in Ohio's 7th district, which was another open seat race, Max Miller, who is a former Trump aide, is going to be the nominee there for the Republicans. And it's a deep red district, so should probably be favored to win that seat. Okay, so that's a recap. What are some things that we can learn from this? Number one. There was a surge in momentum for Matt Dolan, who was the only candidate that didn't seek Trump's endorsement, but it was not sufficient to carry him over the line. It was significant enough to carry him from fifth place to third place. So it seems like there was some consolidation of Timken and Givens voters, uh, folks who were interested in someone other than Vance or Mandel, into that lane. So there is some appetite, particularly among more suburban voters, to move on from Trump. But the Trump endorsement and the Trump mode of, of governing and campaigning is still pretty potent in a, in a state like Ohio. Vance got above 30% of the vote. He was getting 26 in polling, so some of the undecideds broke late for him. And Mandel actually just edged out Dolan for second place based on the numbers that we're seeing this morning. That may change over time, but I think that's what we're going to end up seeing. So you've got over 50% that are supporting very Trumpy candidates in this uh, Senate primary. This is something that will come into play here in a couple of weeks in terms of, an, again, a crowded field of candidates uh, in an open seat race. What's going to happen in Pennsylvania? 
Pennsylvania, because while J.D. Vance, it, it's hard to say that Vance is a significantly worse candidate than a Josh Mandel, than the untested Matt Dolan, or the, uh, you know, has, has run before and, and you know, Jane Timken would be untested as well. Mike Gibbons has run before, didn't run as strongly. It's, it's hard to say that Vance is significantly worse than any of those candidates. Dr. Oz is a significantly worse candidate than, I would say, several of the other candidates running in the Pennsylvania primary. He's, he's just much easier for Democrats to attack. So, but he's also been endorsed by Trump. Is that going to be enough? So what we saw in Ohio is that in a relatively crowded environment where candidate quality is kind of even-ish across the board or where all candidates have flaws, Trump can still carry you to victory with his endorsement. I think it's hard to argue that that wasn't the deciding factor in the race. Could Vance have won without it? Yes. Crowded field, lots of different people appealing in lots of different ways. You could see a, a path to victory for Vance without the Trump endorsement. Would he have won it as clearly and decisively as he did? Certainly not. It would have been a situation where you know he's, he's coming out of a very, very muddled field, and it's, it's totally unclear. Okay? What we don't know yet is whether Trump's endorsement can carry a weak candidate above candidates that would be clearly better off in the general election. You are better off with David McCormick in the general election in Pennsylvania than you are with Dr. Oz. He just he has fewer vulnerabilities to exploit. There are fewer lines of attack. And while neither of them is well-tested as a candidate, there is a clear pathway for someone like David McCormick to win a race in a state like Pennsylvania. You know, he runs the Glenn Youngkin campaign, but for Senate instead. And yeah, you can, you can see the pathway. Nobody like Dr. Oz, to my knowledge, has ever won a Senate race in a state like Pennsylvania. Just, just from looking at it from that perspective, Oz is a weaker general election candidate. So will that, and, and you know, the fact that there's been reports of, of people not being happy about that endorsement, is Trump's support of Oz sufficient to carry him over the finish line in Pennsylvania or not? In other words, we know that Trump's endorsement still carries weight. How much weight does it still carry? Does it still carry enough weight? that it can completely change that dynamic in a primary like this. And then the second question is, Dolan started to consolidate momentum very late in the race, like a week beforehand. If you are one of the non-Oz alternatives in Pennsylvania, you want to see some consolidation start to happen now. Had this primary been another week out, would there have been more consolidation? Would Dolan have actually been able to win or at least make things more competitive? We don't really know the answer to that question. But what we do know is that if there's going to be consolidation, that momentum happening in the last week is not going to be sufficient to overcome the Trump endorsement, at least in a field where all candidates are equal. We will have to see how this plays out. The other race to watch in terms of can uh, Trump carry a very flawed candidate through in a field where maybe other candidates don't share some of those flaws would be Nebraska's gubernatorial primary next week where you have Charles Herbster, the Trump-endorsed candidate who's been you know, accused and is in some messy legal matters with some state senators over accusations of sexual harassment. You have the moderate Brett Lindstrom, and then Jim Pillen, I think his name is, or Pylon, I think it's Pillen, who is a member of the Nebraska Board of Regents. So that primary is going to be an interesting one to watch. And Nebraska is, of course, the home of the Deb Fisher right, of a, a candidate that's a little bit less known, sneaking up the middle while the two uh, folks, you know, more on top, beat each other up. Uh, in a crowded primary like that, there's always that Deb Fisher possibility. Okay, that is a recap 
of the primary, a little bit of lessons learned of what we think this teaches us, and how to watch some of the upcoming primaries in light of what just happened in Indiana and Ohio. None of this is probably going to change the overall outlook of the 2022 election, but it does give us a sense of races to watch and how things might shake out. So that's going to be a wrap for this episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. And for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off. Thank you.